Hello, I'm Lisa German, University Librarian and Dean of Libraries, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Mapping Prejudice, a reckoning with structural racism in the Twin Cities. The Mapping Prejudice team has trained scores of volunteers to identify racial covenants, language and deeds that historically barred non-white people from owning or even occupying property in the Twin Cities. These encounters with racism can lead to crucial conversations about race and to commitments to social justice. We in the libraries are proud to be the home of the Mapping Prejudice Project. Through this project, we are able to support community engagement that helps us understand and connect with our neighbors. This evening, we'll hear from Kirsten Delegard, co-director of Mapping Prejudice, who founded the Just Deeds Project to discharge racial covenants. Rose McGee, creator of Sweet Potato Comfort Pie, a catalyst for caring and community, will serve as a moderator for the Q&A portion of the program. Kirsten Delegard is one of the co-founders of the Mapping Prejudice Project. She received her PhD in history from Duke University, where she trained as a women's historian. In her early research, she explored the history of women and politics. More recently, she has devoted her energy to public history and unearthing the complex past of her hometown, Minneapolis. This focus has led to mapping prejudice and the Historiopolis project, which she also started. Maria Cisneros is the city attorney for the city of Golden Valley, Minnesota, the past, the immediate past president of the Minnesota Association of City Attorneys and founder of the Just Deeds Project, which provides free legal and title services to help property owners find covenants and remove them from property titles. She handles a wide range of civil legal matters for the city and also provides general civil advice to city staff and elected officials. She graduated summa cum laude from the William Mitchell College of Law and has a BS from the University of Minnesota where she majored in international business and Spanish. She is from the metro area and lives with her husband and four children in a home that had a racially restrictive covenant. Her husband and children are mixed race Latino and her family would not have been allowed to live in their neighborhood when their home was built in the 1950s. Rose McGee, as well as creator of Sweet Potato Comfort Pie, is a recent Bush Fellow a Minnesota 50 over 50, and was featured in the PBS documentary, A Few Good Pie Places, and has presented the TED Talk, The Power of Pie. Rose is also a humanities officer for the Minnesota Humanities Center. She also resides in Golden Valley and has been recognized as Citizen of the Year. In 2013, Rose gained her own home back after an 18 month foreclosure battle called dual tracking, which means the mortgage holder says they're working with the homeowner, but often without warning sells the home 
without notification. As we begin the program, you'll notice two buttons at the bottom of your screen. Please use the chat button if you have technical questions and the Q&A button if you have questions for our presenters. You may submit your questions at any time and we'll get to as many as possible later in the program. Before we begin, I'd like to share a perspective that's important to all of us. The University of Minnesota Twin Cities is built within the traditional homelands of the Dakota people. It is important to acknowledge the peoples on whose land we live, learn, and work as we seek to improve and strengthen our relations with tribal nations. We also acknowledge that words are not enough. We must ensure that our institution provides support, resources, and programs that increase access to all aspects of higher education for American Indian students, staff, faculty, and community members. Now, Kirsten Delegard will begin our program. Thank you so much. Um, I'm so honored to be here with, um, with all of you and with my wonderful um, co-presenters. So, um, so I'm gonna start out by saying that every one of us can say that in the last year, our worlds have turned upside down, right? Um, sometimes several times. Um, we've all faced these cascading crises of, triggered by the pandemic, racial violence, um, political unrest, polarization. Um, and I've been telling people lately that this is one of the moments where I'm very glad that I'm a historian and not a futurist. I'm very glad that I didn't have to anticipate um, all the, everything that was gonna unfold over these last difficult months. Um, but, I can but I can also say at the same time that um, I, I'm not surprised by the convulsive events of the last year. Since we began mapping prejudice, I've been sounding a warning to pretty much anyone who would listen. Um, it, it went like this. Here in the Twin Cities, we have the largest, um, highest racial disparities in the country. So this is unjust, but it's also unsustainable. I kept telling people this um, would not end well, right? Um, then of course we came to Memorial Day um, and, and it was on May 25th that George Floyd was murdered by Minneapolis police officers. Sorry. Um, from this corner at 38th and Chicago, um, demonstrations and, and civil unrest spread around the city and around the world. Um, and in the first month after Floyd's death, 20 million Americans actually joined public demonstrations for Black Lives Matter. Um, so scholars are now calling this the largest protest movement in American history. Um, so during those initial first weeks of the Minneapolis uprising, uh, my team, my Mapping Prejudice team, was contacted uh, by people from literally every corner of the world who wanted to know why this started in Minneapolis. Um, so that's a question that we're going to be grappling with as a community for, for many years. Um, and I would never suggest that there's a single answer to that question. Um, but my team has been able to provide one way into the larger conversation that we need to be having as a community. And we've been doing it like this. We've been working with people, as um, Dean German said, in the Twin Cities to understand the legacies of, the, of racial covenants. So racial covenants are clauses that were inserted into property deeds that um, to keep people who are not white from, 
from buying or even occupying um, land and homes. Um, these clauses were composed and promoted by realtors, city planners, um, bankers, elected officials um, for most of the 20th century. Um, and they worked in concert with other practices like white violence, uh, real estate steering, redlining, uh, to keep people who are not white from, from owning land and homes. So the Fair Housing Act of 1968 um, made all of these practices illegal everywhere in the United States. And um, once this happened, there was a rush to forget, at least among white people. Um, and what our project is doing is we're, we're trying to peel back um, what I've come to call this willful amnesia and empower communities uh, to engage in collective remembering. So the last year, of course, has given us fresh urgency in this work. Um, the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd have forced us to confront um, the fact that it's not, um, as people say, nice to be a person of color here in Minnesota. So what do I mean by that? Let's look at some key numbers. So the, so the Twin Cities has the highest um, gap in the country for any major metropolitan area um, between black and white home ownership rates. Um, uh, that means that 75% of white families own their own homes, while only 23% of black families can make that, that same claim. So this home ownership gap is important because it undergirds a raft of, a whole, of, of all kinds of other racial disparities that afflict our community. So I've just put one statistic up on the screen, um, but we could spend all night here scrolling through um, these numbers. Um, but here's, here's the basic idea. Housing is critically important because it sits at the foundation of everything else. It determines whether you're gonna be healthy or sick, your access to education, whether your family is gonna be able to amass wealth. Um, and since our project began, um, our team has been focused on, on a pretty, on actually, well, a lot of questions, but one simple question, which is how did we get to this place? How did we get to this place of um, incredible disparity? And again, there are many answers to that question, but our project um, is highlighting a critical watershed for our community and for other communities. Um, and that was this decision to use private contracts um, to reserve huge swaths of land for the exclusive use of white people. So in reality, um, this practice actually started in the territorial um, period for the state as the, as the opening land acknowledgement by um, uh, Dean German um, makes explicit, Minnesota Makoche was seized by the federal government in the 19th century through a series of treaties um, whose promises were then not honored. So racial covenants in many ways uh, built on that foundation. Developers started using them to ensure the, that the land that was taken from indigenous people um, could only be occupied or owned by people who were perceived to be white. So um, in the Twin Cities, this practice started in 1910, and this is the first deed that we have found um, that contains this kind of clause. Um, it says that this property shall not be conveyed, mortgaged, or leased to any persons of Chinese, Japanese, Moorish, Turkish, uh, Mongolian, or African blood or descent. Um, Edmund Walton was the person who uh, wrote this clause. He insert, he was a prominent pro property real estate developer at the time, and he inserted the same language into thousands of other deeds um, in Hennepin and Ramsey County. Um, he also gave his name to Edmund Boulevard in Minneapolis. 
Um, so hundreds of other developers followed Walton's lead. They composed thousands or um, hundreds of variations on this language. Um, and I'm going to read you a couple of examples, but I want to for forewarn you before I do that, that, that this language is, is disturbing. So this one says, no person of any race other than the Aryan race shall use or occupy um, any building or any lot. And, and that one's from 1946, by the way. Um, this one says, the said premises shall not at any time be sold, conveyed, uh, leased, or sublet or occupied by any person or persons who are not full bloods of the so-called Caucasian or white race. And this one says, no person of any race other than the Caucasian race shall use or occupy any building or any lot, except that this covenant shall not prevent occupancy by domestic servants of a different race domiciled with an owner or tenant. So we read these um, words in every presentation. It's, it's painful. Um, it's painful to hear them, but it's important because it forces us to confront this blatant racism. And I want to be clear that my intent here is not to re-traumatize um, people who have suffered the consequences of these lines of text. Um, and to you, I offer an apology. And I hope that um, this public acknowledgement will affirm your experience. I hope um, that we can work with communities of color to make this, this research empowering. So, but today, um, many white people um, are shocked when they, when they hear this language. Um, and I can certainly understand this reaction. It's, it's chilling to hear this, but I wanna emphasize that there was nothing secret about these restrictions when they were in place. So racial covenants were printed in, um, in newspaper ads for new housing developments like this one. Um, they, they were featured in the plot lines of books and plays and movies. Um, they were the subject of countless studies and news reports. And of course, stud and, and stories about covenants have been passed down through black, um, Asian, Jewish, and Native American families. But with all this, with all this rich record of memoirs and narratives and activism, um, there's still a lot that we don't know about these covenants. Um, for instance, what did they actually say? Um, where were they used? How common were they? How much land did they cover? Um, and my team decided, we decided to answer these questions in an unconventional way. Um, we used computers to comb through millions of property records to flag the documents that seem to have this racist language. And then we harness the power of community. So our project has been leading people of all ages and backgrounds in the work of mapping these restrictions. And for our Hennepin County map, um, we had 3,000 volunteers who read 177,000 um, property deeds. They found 24,000 property parcels that have racial covenants. Um, and when we put this information on a map, this is, this is what it looks like. Um, so what you're seeing here, and you can, you can go to our website and, and spend more time with this, um, with this map, um, what you're seeing here is the spread of racial covenants throughout Hennepin County over time. Um, you can see the, the, um, the years ticking by in the right-hand corner. Um, and each one of these blue dots denotes an individual property parcel that was reserved exclusively for white people. So when you, when you get to the end of the time-lapse, you can see um, all the 24,000 plus property parcels in Hennepin County that we've identified as having racial covenants. So this map is unique. Um, no one has ever created a comprehensive map of this kind before for any American city. 
Um, but it's also unique the way we built it. Um, we, we built it in collaboration with community. And as we did that, we discovered this process um, to be as important as the final map. Um, to be, we found it to be a really powerful vehicle for, um, for policymaking, for research, and for community conversations like we're, we're having tonight. So as you can see, we finished mapping um, Hennepin County and I'm delighted to, to report that our amazing volunteers just finished transcribing the records for Ramsey County. Um, we actually had another 3000 volunteers join us for this effort. Um, over the last year, they reviewed 250,000 deed images and donated um, 21,000 hours of labor uh, to the creation of a data set of covenants in Ramsey County. And I'm guessing um, some of you, at least, who are here with us tonight are have, have been involved with the project, and I, I just want to say thank you. Um, and also, I'll, I'll reward you with giving you a little sneak peek of, um, of the map. Um, this is uh, one of the first times we've unveiled it in public. Um, so this is just the very, very, very initial um, sneak peek of, of the data that we're starting to get from all that um, volunteer labor in Ramsey County. It gives you a little bit of a sense of some of the patterns that we're seeing. Um, it's very preliminary and we're gonna be adding to it over, over the next sub several months. Um, also, we're working with other counties in the Metro um, to get their digitized property records. In an ideal world, um, we would like to have a full visualization for the entire seven county metro um, area of the Twin Cities. Um, that may, may take a while. So, um, but thanks to a grant that we got from the National Endowment for the Humanities, we're also now working with a handful of communities across the country to map their racial covenants. Um, and I would like to invite you to join us in this work. Um, we have online weekly volunteer sessions. Um, we'd love to have you be part of those. Um, those sessions, in those sessions, you can learn to document this history. Um, you can find details again about all these sessions on our website. Um, and I wanna be clear that um, I'm extending this invitation and it's not, not just for some kind of rote data entry. Um, we want you to read these primary sources together in community um, and then share what you've learned with friends, family members and elected officials. Um, tonight, I am so lucky to be sharing this virtual stage with two amazing women who have been leading um, these kinds of conversations. Uh, Maria Cisneros and Rose McGee have powerful stories about the way this kind of dialogue leads to action. And um, I'm really looking forward to um, hearing from them. So um, when you do this work, here's some things that we hope that you will take away from it. Um, uh, so I read you that text um, that shows it's, it's very hard to refute. Um, the, the intention of, of, the, of, the, of these documents. Um, the map, the, the time-lapse map that I put up um, shows how widespread they were. Um, it's also really important to know how powerful these covenants were. Covenants ran with the land, which meant that they were there forever once they were put into place. Um, it didn't matter how many times the property changed hands or what was built there, um, the, the, these racist restrictions remained. And anyone who dared to breach one of these covenants risked ending up um, in court and losing any kind of um, equity or capital they had accumulated in the property. So a breach triggered a process um, that put the parcel back in the hands of the person who put the racial covenant in the, in, in the first place. If that person were no longer alive, it would go to their heirs. So, um, but the, the 
the hard truth is that most white people did not challenge um, covenants because they thought they were beneficials, beneficial. They, they agreed with this premise that um, covenants protected property values and neighborhood harmony, that they were actually necessary for, for, for neighborhoods. Black people, by contrast, um, saw covenants um, for what they were as a threat to basic liberty. And here in the Twin Cities, um, we had leaders like Nellie Francis and Madison Jackson and Lena Olive-Smith and James Wardlaw and Katie McWatt who devoted their lives to fighting these practices. And they built the areas that were free from these restrictions into neighborhoods um, that were rich in institutions and solidarity. Um, they carved out spaces for celebration and joy. Um, I always think that's very important to remember um, in, in reading about or in, in learning about structural racism. Um, they also challenged the premise and the practice of restricting housing for white people. They bought houses with covenants. Um, they moved into white neighborhoods. Um, and this is what Arthur and Edith Lee did in 1931 when they bought a tiny bungalow in South Minneapolis. When the neighbors around um, the Lee house found out that a black family was moving in, they organized to stop the sale. They called the realtor, the bank, the city council, other neighbors, even the police. Um, and the Lees um, were steadfast. They ignored these pleas um, and threats and moved into their new home. And they found themselves immediately under attack. Um, it, was a, it was summer at the beginning of the Great Depression um, and 6,000 people gathered around the Lee house um, and stayed for months, actually. Um, they tried to burn the house down. They threatened to murder the family. They killed the family dog. Um, they shot out the windows and threw black paint on the siding. The photo on the left side um, shows um, the Lee's daughter, Mary, with her mother, Edith, um, uh, standing in front of the house after one of these attacks. You can see the black paint on the siding and you can see the broken window in the upper right-hand corner of the photo. Um, today, the Lee house is still standing. Um, you can visit it at 46th and Columbus because Arthur and Edith and Mary had the support um, of other veterans who served with Arthur in World War I and his coworkers at the downtown post office. They formed an armed perimeter around the house um, to keep the house from um, being burned down and from the and, and the family from being from being murdered. Um, so why am I telling this story? The Lee House actually didn't have a covenant. Um, but the proliferation of covenants, it was right on the border and the relief of, of a, a neighborhood that had, was totally covered with covenants. And the proliferation of covenants normalized the ideas that led to this attack. So as um, these racial boundaries at the beginning of the 20th century hardened in American cities, this threat of white violence was ever present. And um, it's important to recognize that this is one of the main ways that covenants were enforced. People did not bother going to court. They called together a mob like this one. So covenants are illegal today. Um, I've already said this, but they were made illegal through a series of court decisions, starting with Shelley v. Kramer, um, that was the U United States Supreme Court, um, and um, laws um, ending with the Fair Housing Act in 1968. But today we are still living with the legacies of, of this practice. So what did, uh, what did covenants do in Minneapolis? 
um, they transformed a relatively mixed city into a racially segregated city. So what covenants did is they emboldened white Minneapolitans to harass um, black residents like the Lees. Um, and black, as, as, as part of this, black residents were pushed into a couple of small neighborhoods in Minneapolis. And as new neighborhoods were platted and came online, they were restricted with covenants. Those neighborhoods are still the widest areas of the city today. And the neighborhoods that didn't have covenants were redlined. So that's the federal practice that declared neighborhoods that were racially mixed to be hazardous investments for lenders. So this choked off capital to these areas. So these two things, um, the combination of these two things, covenants plus redlining, work to make it really hard for people who are not white to find stable, affordable, and decent housing. It made it really hard for people who are not white to buy homes. Um, so this is important, as I said at the beginning, for so many reasons, right? Um, your housing undergirds so much. Um, but one of the reasons it's important is that homeownership is a critical avenue to wealth accumulation in the United States. Um, so this story is in no way unique to Minneapolis or the Twin Cities. Um, this, all, all these things that I'm talking about, this, this urban reshuffling, um, this segregation by race, covenants, this violence, this was happening in every community across the country. Um, and in fact, the, the federal government encouraged it um, uh, in the 1930s. Um, the federal government started making covenants a precondition for public underwriting of development in all communities. So across the nation, blacks, in the words of the poet Langston Hughes, were hemmed in. That was the title of a poem that he wrote in 1949 um, that included these lines. They've got covenants restricting me, hemmed in on the south side, can't breathe free. And this yearning to breathe free is something that is still resonating today. You know, more than 70 years later, black people are still struggling for breath. Please, 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 I can't breathe. Those were some of George Floyd's last words. So he was pinned under the knee of a police officer, but it was the structural racism of my hometown that brought him to the pavement of Chicago Avenue. So this story is personal for me in so many ways. Um, I'm a third generation Minneapolitan. And at the same time that residents in South Minneapolis were terrorizing the Lees and other black families, they were welcoming my grandparents. Um, my grandparents were, from, um, were, were immigrants and they're from immigrant families um, with roots in Sweden. Um, my grandparents started their adult lives um, with very little money and very little formal education. Two of my grandparents were orphaned at very young ages and were pretty much on their own. Um, and none of my grandparents made it past the eighth grade. Um, but like, um, like many people of, of uh, many immigrant families, uh, they had a huge ca uh, capacity for hard work. Um, they labored as farmhands, as domestic servants, as lumberjacks, as carpenters um, in small towns in Minnesota, Wisconsin, North Dakota, um, Montana. And then they decided to come to the big city in search of opportunity, and, and they found it. Um, during the Great Depression, um, my grandparents built businesses, they got married, um, they saved their money, 
1942, both sets of my grandparents were able to buy houses. Um, this is a family film that my, my grandfather had made um, to record this incredibly important moment for my family. Um, uh, so the little guy in the front there, at the, in the center of the frame, in the overalls on the shoulders, that's my dad. Um, and I show this footage uh, because it, it demonstrates what a huge uh, deal this was for my family. Um, I used to call this a home movie until um, someone actually explained to me that um, this film predates uh, the invention of the home movie camera, which means that my grandfather must have hired a film crew to record this critical day. Um, and the, the film goes on for two hours. It's on YouTube if you want to watch the whole thing. Um, and it, it shows that he invited, that he and my grandmother invited people from um, everyone they'd ever met <laughs> uh, from around the region to come to the house to celebrate um, the joy that he felt at becoming a homeowner in Minneapolis. Thanks to our map, um, I now know that my grandparents' house had a covenant. Um, that black icon on the map marks my grand grandparents' house and the red on the map is all covenants. My mom grew up nearby um, and it's, it was the same story um, on her block. Um, and although um, both sets of my grandparents were new arrivals, they were regarded as white. Um, that meant that they could build their lives in a place um, that was off limits to other Minneapolitans with similar incomes and education. So I grew up um, spending a lot of time at my grandparents' houses and um, listening to stories from my parents and my uncles um, about what it was like to grow up in this neighborhood near Lake Nokomis. Um, and everyone, um, all my elders describe it as just a wonderful place to be a kid um, in, in these decades and in, in, in the 1950s. Um, they, my, um, my mom and my dad always talked about how they were able to spend all their time outdoors. Um, they um, would swim in Lake uh, Nokomis, they would skate in the winter, um, they would roam along the banks of Minnehaha Creek. And um, very significantly, um, the neighborhood had really solid schools, uh, which prepared my, my parents to go to college. Both of my parents went to college, my mother went to graduate school, um, even though their parents had very limited formal education. But what we never talked about as a family is that this was only for white people. Um, my parents um, say that they just never questioned why their neighbors were all Swedish and Norwegian and German. Uh, this uniform whiteness seemed utterly natural to them. And, and now I know as a historian that this is a moment um, in the city of Minneapolis when the number of, of black people is increasing dramatically. The timing is important for other reasons too. My grandparents bought their houses just as the United States was about to see the largest expansion of the middle class in its history. And much of this prosperity would rest on home ownership, which had been deliberately supported by a whole raft of new federal programs in the 1930s. Um, these programs spurred the creation of the modern mortgage, uh, which allowed many, many more people to afford um, to own their own homes but they also prompted redlining. So these programs were built on a philosophy of white supremacy, which meant that 98% uh, of FHA loans made between 1934 and 1962 went to white people, 98%. So in 
So two generations later, I am still benefiting from the fact that my grandparents were encouraged to buy houses in a part of the city where property values climbed uh, throughout the 20th century. Uh, so our research shows today, uh, more than 50 years after uh, the Fair Housing Act, houses in Minneapolis that had covenants like the, one, um, the ones owned by my grandparents are worth 15% more than identical houses that did not have covenants. My grandparents were able to pass this additional value on to me. And when my grandfather died, um, my family sold his house and distributed the proceeds, um, um, including a chunk to each grandchild. And I was able to use that money to make a down payment on a house in another part of South Minneapolis where I'm sitting today, um, that basically, where I was basically looking to replicate a lot of the things that my parents talked about being important to them growing up. Um, I wanted my kids to have solid schools and um, easy access to the chain of lakes. So realtors can attest to the fact that I am fortunate, but not exceptional in this regard. They have done lots of research um, that shows that 30% uh, of first-time home buyers um, get help from family to manage the purchase of a home. So like a lot of my peers, I was able to leverage the economic security of earlier generations to secure the future of my children. Um, but because uh, for my kids and the kids of my kids, because their mom is a historian, um, my kids have come of age uh, learning, hearing how their lives have been shaped by the opportunities that were enjoyed by my grandparents. So as a family, we talk all the time about how we carry our history with us. None of us is unencumbered. Um, what our map does is help all of us to see this history, um, to help all of us locate ourselves in this history. And what our volunteers have done is they've taught us, our team, um, that the pro this process of reading these deeds helps them to see structural racism. And when I say structural racism, I mean collective racial prejudice that is backed by legal authority and institutional control. So racial covenants are classic manifestations of structural racism. So racism is not just a matter of personal bias. Um, you know, it's not just uh, the sentiments of people like these protesters who picketed um, Minnesota State hearings on fair housing in 1968, 62, excuse me. Um, you know, most often racism is not as obvious as these signs. Um, we want people to understand that racist ideology has been embedded into community institutions um, over the decade, decades that it's been actually written into the foundational documents of our communities. And this history helps us to understand why it seems to be the same group of people who are vulnerable to housing insecurity of all kinds, right? Um, the system was actually built to keep black and brown people from owning property, um, from amassing wealth. Um, it was built to keep black and brown people out of places um, that are supposed to be open to everyone. So what do we do? Um, we have to repair the damage that has been done. So how do we do that? Um, the first step is to remember, right? And that's what we're doing tonight. Uh, this is part of the, the process of reparations, which Tanahishi Coates described as, quote, the full acceptance of our collective biography and its consequences. But that's not enough. Um, as Minneapolis City Council member Jeremiah Ellison wrote recently, um, he said, well-meaning white people here make a ritual of acknowledging the city's steep inequities. It's as if people think the mere acknowledgement is the work. It's not, right? Um, but that's where all of you come in. 
Um, I'm handing the baton to you. How do we make meaningful change? Um, look around the institutions and the organizations where you have influence. What needs to happen? If these questions make you feel overwhelmed, you're not alone. Um, so we've compiled some resources to help guide you on our website. Um, uh, so please, please check those out. Um, but I always prefer human guidance. And that's why I have Maria Cisneros and Rose McGee with me here tonight. Um, they're gonna tell us about their work with the Just Eats Project and Sweet Potato Comfort Pie. Um, these initiatives are helping all of us translate this awareness into action. So, but here's what we do know. Repair work is going to cost money. Keeping, um, but keeping the status quo will be more expensive, both economically and morally. None of us want to go back. None of us want to repeat the past. Um, but we need to use the imaginative space uh, that's opened up by this history con to construct a better future. To close, I want to draw again on the words of Ta-Nehisi Coates. Reparations, in the words of Coates, is, quote, a national reckoning that would lead to spiritual renewal. So I want to be a part of this spiritual renewal. I'm so glad to have you with me on this journey. With that, I will hand it off to Maria Cisneros, who is the staff attorney for the, for the city of Golden Valley and one of the founders of the Just Deeds Project. Thank you for having me. Thank you to the University of Minnesota Libraries and to Mapping Prejudice and Kirsten for that wonderful um, presentation. It's an honor to be here and to be talking about um, this topic um, and the Just Deeds Project which is a coalition. Um, we're a coalition of community stakeholders that are committed to acknowledging and addressing systemic racism in housing. Um, and we have grown out of, um, of the work of mapping prejudice and also um, out of a state statute that was passed in 2019 that allows property owners to discharge or renounce um, the racially restrictive covenants that Kirsten was just talking about. Um, and so to start, just I'm going to just kind of orient you about me and why I'm working on this and why I'm here um, and kind of respond to a call to action that Kirsten gives when she gives her talk, um, which I think is kind of the, the root for why, um, why I'm here and um, what we're asking people to try to engage in um, as we talk about this topic. So that's a picture of my family. That's me with my husband, Miguel, and our four children. Um, and we live in a home in Golden Valley. Um, and I, like Kirsten, I'm gonna share um, some disturbing language. Um, the language that's gonna pop up now is the language that I found on the title of our property when we purchased our home five years ago. Um, and so um, this was shocking language to find um, in the community that I grew up in. Um, and also um, because it meant that if if I had been living, my husband and I had been living during the time that this house was built, which is when my dad was growing up here in Golden Valley and my grandparents were buying their house, my family would not have been allowed. We wouldn't have been able to live in our house. Um, and so coming to that realization and understanding what that means for me and my family um, in terms of all of the opportunity that uh, my dad and his siblings had growing up in this community that would not have been available to my kids and was not available to so many people um, for no reason other than their skin color um, has uh, caused me to want to do something further. And so my husband and I in 2019, when the discharge process was created by the legislature, we went through that process 
um, and found it to be a very powerful thing. It was, um, to use the words of the, the city of Minneapolis used when they announced their participation in this project, um, it was um, reclaiming our home as an equitable space um, and, and saying that that is no longer allowed in this piece of land in this place. Um, and so we thought, well, wouldn't it be powerful to get all our neighbors to do that because our entire neighborhood is covered. And then I work for the city. So wouldn't it be powerful to get our whole city to come on board? And so the, the Golden Valley Human Rights Commission started a project um, where we recruited um, attorneys to provide free legal help to help people go through that process. It's not a very complicated process, but you do need access to some county records and you need to record a document in the county system. Um, and so we thought attorneys would be really helpful. And thankfully, as we started having those conversations, this group of founding members that you see on the left here came together. Um, much of, a, uh, of the networking that happened to bring this group together came through Mapping Prejudice, um, which is just amazing. We've had some really, really great um, conversations and ideas, and we thought we need to formalize this. We need to keep doing this. We need to bring more people in because we're having, we're making progress. We're having important conversations and we're getting ideas to the people who can do something with them. Um, and so we started the Just Deeds project um, and we have at this point um, seven participating cities. Hopkins joined us yesterday. So just got in under the wire uh, and we expect more cities to join um, going forward. So I'll just tell you a little bit about our mission and what we are doing. So what we're doing is acknowledging all of the things that Kirsten just talked about. Um, we're hearing the call from Mapping Prejudice about the importance of remembering these things and of understanding um, why they're important and, and that they happen. And so, um, and, and uh, the call to action for the organizations that I wanna be part of this work with us is to be honest about it. And specifically to be honest about the roles that our industries have played in this practice. Local government, um, my industry was very much involved in this practice and continues to be involved in systems that perpetuate the legacy of restrictive covenants. Um, and the same with the real estate industry, the same with the legal industry, the same, you know, it just kind of goes on and on. Um, but what we're asking people to do is to acknowledge that and to be very honest about it um, so that we can move to kind of the next steps and start to take action. So, so why are we doing this? We think it's important to understand who benefited from racial covenants, who still continues to benefit. Um, what the legacy of those covenants has been and how it has, has shaped access to things like homeownership, health, outcomes, education, uh, policing patterns, um, all, all of these things. And I think it's important, especially um, I was reading uh, an article or a, a report by the Metropolitan Council the other day about, um, it was called Rethinking Areas of Concentrated Poverty. And they have a bunch of things that they learned and talking to the community for um, uh, over a period of months. Um, and they specifically call out the importance of talking about um, this history um, and also the importance of um, examining how we have um, used deficit-based language to talk about disparities and to talk about concentrations of poverty um, and how that is harmful for a variety of reasons, um, not the least of which is that it puts the blame on the people who've been harmed, but also because it ignores the structural um, undergird, uh, underpinnings of these problems. And if you ignore those st structural issues, then you don't fix them. 
And so um, we want to kind of reframe this conversation in the way that Mapping Prejudice is, is telling us um, so that we can start to have those conversations about um, what, to, what we need to fix. Um, and so how are we doing this? Um, we're doing this by um, helping people discharge racially restrictive covenants. And much like uh, Mapping Prejudice has um, engaged their volunteers um, personally in the process, reading the language um, together and having conversations about it, we find that the discharge process is similar. It's a very powerful thing to read the words of a covenant that were on your house and to imagine yourself in that landscape um, and to, to then share what you learned and what you thought and what you felt with your neighbors and with your community. Um, and so we're also um, we're providing education to communities, to realtors, um, education to um, city officials, education to neighbors. We have a neighborhood toolkit. You can just download it and have your neighbors over for a glass of wine uh, and watch uh, Jim Crow of the North. Um, and then investing in solutions that create equity. So th this is kind of happening just really organically um, through the organizations that have come part together as part of our coalition. Um, and so just quickly to wrap up, you might be wondering what, what you can do. And I can't tell you all the things that you can do um, in this short amount of time, um, but just a couple of ideas for you. So first of all, if you live in a property that has a covenant, you can discharge those covenants and we can help you do that. Um, that's a picture of the form that gets filled out. You need a little bit of information from the county records to fill out that form. And we can help you do that if that feels um, right to you. Um, another thing you can do is to continue to learn about this topic and to continue to learn about the legacy of restrictive covenants. So there's um, our website, justdeeds.org, and you can go there. We have a number of resources. There are also many other websites, many other resources. Mapping Prejudice has a great website. Um, Habitat for Humanity has a really good blog about this topic. Um, there's a lot of uh, resources, but we hope that you'll continue to learn about restrictive covenants, about other forms of systemic racism um, and about their impacts today. And then lastly, we hope that you'll share what you learn. Um, you may be compelled to share through social media. Uh, maybe, maybe that's not uh, your jam, but you can also, you can invite your neighbors over and share that way. You can, um, share with your family, you know, let me, you might learn something like Kirsten and I did about your family history that is important to share. Um, you might also share with the planning commission. You might watch what's happening on a city level and your policy or on a state level, and then share your opinions about that policy based on what you learn here today. Um, but the takeaway here is um, what we're trying to do is continue the learning process and harness um, the collective power of individual action, because um, this is a personal story for all of us. And when we all um, kind of take this action together and join this movement, we, we can make a difference. Um, and so with that, I will turn it over to Rose McGee, um, who is an amazing leader um, in the, from the Golden Valley community, and she's leading people all over the place. Um, she is the creator of sweet potato comfort pie. If you haven't tasted her pie, you definitely should. Um, and um, sweet potato comfort pie is a catalyst for caring and building community. So I'll hand it over to you, Rose. Thank you, uh, neighbor Maria and um, Kirsten. It was wonderful hearing um, this, this presentation. It's the first time I've heard it in its full details and it was, just remarkable. And I also want to thank Dean Lisa as well for the introduction. You know, um, one thing I, I try to let people know is 
we are more than just a pretty pie and more than just a good tasting pie. We bring people together through the pie so that they can um, get a chance to also have some really challenging conversations. And that's what, you know, this sort of event and this um, platform is about as well. Uh, as I listen to all of it, it just made me think, you know, as many years as I've been on this planet and as many places that I have lived, including having grown up in the rural South, what was, you know, in, in, ingrained in us was to own your own land, own your own land. And, and you know, we, we know that song, God bless the child that's got his own. And that was so important. And I was raised with a grandmother and a great grandmother and they did own their own land. Now we were not wealthy, not by any means, but we had our own property and that meant a lot and we still do. But I remember, you know, that uh, I think it was you Kirsten that referenced um, a, a poem from Langston Hughes. And I remember um, the, the production that Lorraine Hansberry did, A Raisin in the Sun. And, and that family's drive just to get out of the poverty they were in and to, to buy a, a, a piece of property so that the children would have something and they could feel safe. And here we are still today with that same struggle and, and that same concern. And it was Randall Robinson who spent so many years trying to um, you know, get reparations acknowledged in this, in this country. And it just, you know, these things, it's as though we, 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 we fight, as we say, the struggle continues, we get exasperated. And I think we're supposed to just keel over and just be tired and done and that's it. But we keep rising, we keep rising and we keep moving forward had that struggle, you know, you referenced it earlier and somebody did ask, what is dual tracking? The situation was my, um, my husband and I, you know, we were just like many black folks. We were so busy being busy. We hadn't really taken care quite of our own business to the extent that perhaps, you know, one would think we should have, especially since we were both supposed to be kind of smart, but we had not. And he died very unexpectedly, very young uh, from cancer at 47. And there I was trying to figure it out and, you know, thought I had it figured out and moving right along. And then all of a sudden I didn't have a job. And I contacted the mortgage company and said, this is the situation, but I'm quite confident that I will have work pretty soon. And they said, well, there's nothing we can do right now. Uh, give us a couple of months and we'll see how we can help you out. Well, fast forwarding this and many, many other episodes in between, I contacted them one day and they said, well, you know, we've sold your house. What do you mean you've sold my house? <laughs> you said you were working with me. We we're trying to get through this thing. And what had happened to me was something called dual tracking. And of course I'd never heard of this before. Well, again, fast forwarding and getting out there and protesting and, and, and going to DC twice speaking on behalf of not just me, but others as well. Five trips to court, a year and a half of all this. And I finally did get my home back. And our Minnesota legislators, how often do they do this, but they actually unanimously voted 
on making the homeowner's bill of rights. They passed that and made it a law. Within that law was dual tracking. So, you know, all of that attributed to, you know, not just me, but all of the folks who have been fighting for that to happen. And that's the kind of action that's so required in so many things that we have to do is trying to understand our, our legislative process and how do we understand what's what. So for me, all right, now I've got my home back. What do I do? And that's how Sweet Potato Comfort Pie began really because I just happened to be watching the television and I saw what, would happen, what had happened with Michael Brown in Ferguson and having just watched all of that horror with young Trayvon Martin, I just felt an urge to do something. So I did something said, make some pies and take them down. And I baked about 30 pies, put them in the trunk of my car and down to Ferguson I went. Realizing on that trip, people wanted to be heard. They wanted to be treated with respect. Came back to Minnesota and we began the project with emphasis on understanding that it's necessary for people to start communicating with each other and listening. Because the thing that we also, I don't know about you, but what I've picked up from tonight already, the intelligence factor that's gone into the research and all of that has now happened. So the next thing is we have to get the word out so that everyday people will begin to know what's going on here and what it is. So that's where we are. So before we move into the questions, I do want to acknowledge the loss of the Asian women and all of the lives in Atlanta yesterday or day before yesterday. And just understand everyone out there that we have so much, so much work to do. And it's hard to stay patient. It's hard to stay in a, um, a mode of wanting to be hopeful, but we must. And as we are being hopeful, we must also understand what can we do? What can we do? And how do we, um, how do we find our place in terms of trying to help with all of this? Because it's straight up white supremacy. Um, someone asked the question and I'm gonna turn this over for one of you ladies to start um, addressing, but it is, it is straight up white supremacy. And someone was very disappointed when they, or, or, or distraught somewhat when they saw the words, only Caucasian, only white. So the question that has come up from, from um, several people is what other groups are included in this? I saw someone uh, specific, uh, specific, specify Jewish community and someone else was wondering about the rule, particularly uh, in the areas where uh, greater indigenous uh, communities are. Are these uh, covenants the same there as well? Mm -hmm. Well, we don't know for sure. I mean, all we um, people have been sending us, we do know that there are covenants all over in small towns, um, but we haven't been able to map to the same degree. Um, but uh, here's, here's what we know. We know that 100% of the covenants that we have found were aimed at Black people. You know, so, so sometimes um, there were other groups that were specified, um, you know, after World War II, in particular, the language shifted to be 
more like only white people, only Caucasian people, which then begged the question of who's white? You know, we know that race is socially constructed, that it changes over time, who is white, who's not white, um, changes. So, so one of the surprises I would say about this research is that we went in fully expecting um, Jews to be named in all of the covenants. That was certainly part of the oral history tradition that I had um, heard. Um, and so we were really surprised to find that less than 1% of the covenants that we identified in, in Hennepin County specifically mentioned Jews, which, which, which sent us back to the, the archive to try to figure out why. Um, and we found out that, that there was a law that was passed in 1919 that um, forbade uh, discrimination on the basis of religion in Minnesota. Um, and that really changed the language going forward. Um, it doesn't mean that there wasn't anti-Semitic you know, sentiments or, or actions in, in real estate transactions. It's just they couldn't be, um, they weren't fully explicit in the, in, in the, through the language. Um, but, you know, it's like, um, you know, the question of who's white, would Maria's um, family be white? <laughs> would they not be white? I mean, it depends on who's asking and who's enforcing. Um, so we find in different communities, actually even like St. Louis Park and Edina, um, those questions are interpreted differently. Um, so the question of Native Americans, I think is really, really important. And I always point out um, the fact that uh, Minnesota basically had a whole had a racial covenant on the whole state <laughs> in the form of a law that was passed after the U.S. Dakota War of 1862 that made it um, forbade Dakota people from living anywhere in the state after that law. I mean, people were deported; they were moved out of the state. Um, so I think um, probably a lot of real estate developers really didn't see a need. The assumption was that there were no Indian people left, no no more Indigenous people left. So they didn't see the need necessarily to name them in racial covenants. Um, so, so these are some of the things that we're, we're finding um, even uh, in our initial foray into the Ramsey County records, we're finding that more um, so-called white ethnics are named. Um, so Italians and Syrians are named in, in Ramsey County. Um, so again, back to your point, Rose, it's um, white supremacy in, in all, you know, in, in that is not simple, it's ever changing. Um, yeah. Mm. Maria, in your work, have you found, can you add to um, sort of the, what you've seen in discharging the covenants, um, the groups that you have noticed? So I can't personally, because um, the discharges that I've done have mostly been in Golden Valley um, and have been from uh, my neighborhood, which is all kind of a similar time period, which all kind of reads similar to how the covenant that I showed reads. Although we do have places in Golden Valley that do specifically mention the Jewish community. Um, and those tend to be in the places that border North Minneapolis, the, um, the places that also had, had, were platted very early on. Um, so we kind of see the patterns that you described just um, across Hennepin County, depending on the time period, the description changes, which is a whole story unto itself. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad you brought that up, Maria, because um, that was the question I was wondering when I first learned that this was, you know, this had evolved in Golden Valley, I called you <laughs> and um, wanted to know, okay, 
how do I check my own property to see? And you did that right away. And we, we discovered that my property was not. So it's, it's, I guess the question is how, what, what makes one part of town so that and the other part of town not that? Um, well, it has almost entirely to do with chronology. So um, that, that um, what we have found here, and this is, just, this is just the Twin Cities, that covenants were usually put into place by developers at the moment that the land was platted. So anything that was platted before 1910, um, is, we haven't found any covenants. So um, anything that was, that was platted after 1910, but before 1955, um, as that time period wears on, it's more and more likely to have covenants. By the 1930s, everything newly platted, all the new neighborhoods, all were completely covered with covenants. Um, so, so you can see that reflected just in the visualization of the map. If you spend some time looking at the map, you can see it's like a donut, right? So like the, the middle of the city is pretty free of covenants, but at, you know, it's the outer rings as they develop um, are, you know, there's just greater um, density of covenants um, going out from there. And you're talking about Minneapolis. Minneapolis and the surrounding suburbs. So we have um, we've pla we've um, mapped all the covenants in Hennepin County. Mm -hmm. so, okay. So yeah. Well, the question that comes up a lot that has come up a lot is how do we get the language out? How do people go about um, finding out and learning? I mean, Maria stumbled across and just you know you're one of those people that you know attorneys do that. You read everything line for line, and most of us don't. We just kind of glimpse. Okay, fine. Okay, next. Yeah sheet of paper that I have to sign. Well, I'll start by saying you, you anyone can go to our website. And if you're looking at a property in Hennepin County, um, look at our homepage and you can um, click on the explore tab on our map and you can put in any address and see whether or not there was ever a covenant associated with them. So that's just a first step. But then you, you contact Maria if you find one. Yeah, so um, yeah, we have the, a link to the Mapping Prejudice map also on our website with that same explore function. Um, but sometimes there are very, very small cases where there might be one that um, we, we could do a deeper title search and maybe find one that um, didn't show up on the map, but that's very rare. The map is very, very accurate. Um, but the thing about property records is that, you know, so we have two property record systems in Minnesota. We have abstract and torrens. Abstract is like, um, this is uh, my layman's in, uh, understanding. It's, it's like, here's all the stuff that has to do with this property. We're going to dump it in a file. Um, and so then you get to sort through it and figure out. And so that's what Mapping Prejudice did is they sorted through all of those documents to find these very old documents that normally you wouldn't ever even look at when you're buying a house or selling a house. They're kind of buried way back when, and they don't really matter unless somebody's fighting over them. Um, and then on uh, Torrens, this is the other property system, you actually get a certificate if you have Torrens property. And that's how I found my covenant because the certificate referenced a document and I clicked the link on that document and I read the whole document and the document had things like, these are the setbacks that have to have, that your house has to have. These are the materials the house must be made out of. Um, the house has to be worth at least, at least this much money. By the way, only white people can live here. Uh, there's an easement reserved for the city in the back five feet of the, of the lot. And so that document continued to appear on my certificate of title because of that city easement that survives. 
And that's how I found the covenant. The interesting thing though, as I've been reading all of these documents, um, I, I was working on a, a, a discharge for the 61 parcels of land that the city of Golden Valley owns that had covenants. And so I spent like six hours reading all of these covenants over and over and putting them into my discharge paperwork. And I realized, so before all of this happened, um, cities didn't really have zoning codes. Then there was a period where cities dabbled with explicitly racist zoning. And the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. And so people said, well, fine, we'll do racially restrictive covenants as kind of a workaround. Um, and so that's when racially restrictive covenants really take off. And then courts start to say, and legislatures start to say, you can't do racially restrictive covenants either. First they say, we well, can do them, but we're not gonna enforce them. And then they finally say, okay, you can't even write them anymore. Um, and as that prog pr progression is happening, what the cities are doing is taking all of those other requirements that were in the very same documents about how much the house has to be worth, how it has to look, where it can be built, what kind of building it can be. They're taking all of those and putting them into the zoning codes. And so part of what's coming out of this work is, as at a city level is really scrutinizing what is in our zoning codes and how is that related to this history? Because when you read those documents and then you read the very first versions of a local government zoning, you realize that those things are very much connected and that the outcomes um, that we see based on how we zone property um, does uh, create disparities and perpetuate um, the housing segregation that we see in place today. Thank you. Well, whew. well, there's so many questions and so little time. So I'm going to toss a, a couple of questions out and you can uh, decide who wants to answer it. But here's one. Uh, what is the current practice of realtors to have their clients looking for a house to have said client write a personal letter to the seller and the role that implicit bias probably plays into looking at multiple offers. That's, that's a pretty sensitive one there. And is mapping only restricted, I mean, only done for residential? Is it also done on commercial property? I'll take the second one if you take the first one, Maria. How about that? <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, we were interested to find out whether um, we would find these racial covenants on commercial properties. So far, we haven't. So I think it's I think it's really interesting because we thought, well, maybe maybe business areas were also restricted in the same way, um, and and that's that's kind of remarkable to me in part because if you think about the city before the automobile, commercial districts and residential neighborhoods were all sort of intermingled, right? Um, so, yeah, we haven't we haven't found large commercial areas covered with these racial restrictions. And Maria, I know you've talked about this question of letter letters and realtors before, so I want to hear your answer. Yeah, so I won't speak for the realtors that are in our group. Um, we have a number of really talented and dedicated realtors mm -hmm. who are um, tackling questions just like that. And they're doing it through realtor education. Um, it's kind of the same as along the lines of like, hey, realtor, give me your opinion about this neighborhood. Um, all these kinds of things that, um, you know, and we see that at the city level too, when people come give opinions about policy, what we have to sort through, what, what do we have in our minds that's based on actual fact? 
And the same is true when you're evaluating a policy and you're evaluating a buyer of your house. Like you're trying to figure out whose mortgage is going to close on time and who's, and there's all sorts of layers that are going into that, that you have learned over time. And we need to sort through which of those things that come into our mind when we're, when we're evaluating that stuff come from these policies and these practices. And then the case of like city policies, for instance, there are, there are arguments that are made when we're evaluating policies about, for instance, the impact of value on value of neighboring properties when we're going to rezone something or change the nature of one parcel. And those things are reflected in the FHA underwriting manuals from this time period. And so we need to start to unpack that. Um, but I could tell you that the realtors in our group are working on some really great um, trainings and materials for um, realtors who I'm sure encounter that situation often, Rose. So it's a very good question. There's so many good ones and I'm being cued that we probably only have time for one more, but I'm gonna sneak in one and two. So <laughs> uh, in, in, in an interesting way, because I believe it's about the property itself, not so much about the house. Someone mentioned that they just built a house in 1980s can they assume that it's unlikely that it has a covenant? I think it's about the land, right? Can you address that? Yep, the, the, the covenants run with the land. So it doesn't matter um, if, it's, if it's attached to a certain piece of land that it's racially restricted forever. So mm. yeah. Matter what's, but, and even if you, if you had a house on it and you tore that down and built an apartment building, each one of those units in an apartment building would be covered by the same racial restriction. Right. Yeah, and that's how the that's how uh, the city of Golden Valley and I know a lot of other units of government ended up with properties that have the covenants because they were originally platted as single family homes and then they later became parkland or they became commercial property. And I just want to say before um, I forget to say it, um, this the process of discharging these covenants does not actually remove the language. The legislature made a conscious decision um, after a lot of research and thought to not remove the language. There are some states where the language is actually redacted and you don't see it anymore, but that's not the choice that Minnesota made. Um, and I think that the reason for that, well, I'm sure there are many reasons, but one of the primary reasons was to preserve this so that we can continue to learn for, from it, just like we are tonight. So some people worry that if they go through the discharge process, they will be erasing that history, but that's not really what's happening. Yeah. And, and somewhere along those lines, someone is saying that why should they spend their energy to go and track this down when the law has made it clear that it's pretty much moot? Well, I don't know about you, but given how untrustworthy some things can be, can you talk to that though? Yeah, I've thought about that a lot. I, um, there is like a very minute sliver of legal possibility that all of these Supreme Court cases at both the federal and state level would be overturned. And then um, these statutes would also be um, um, changed. That is possible. It's not very likely. But I would say the value um, that we're finding that people mostly find in going through this process is um, just like when people go research for mapping prejudice, seeing this with your own eyes and understanding how it is connected to you and your piece of property and maybe the place where you're raising your family, um, it, it, does, it does change how you think about this topic. It just really, um, for me personally and for a lot of the people I've talked to, it, it, the personal connection is really important for helping you understand what you feel compelled to do next to continue to address the issue. 
Wonderful. I just want to em emphasize, um, but we hope that's your first step, right? We hope that discharging the, the language is the first step and that's not, that you don't feel like you're done. Um, so. Well, before we close out, we've got a, a professor on who has a service learning group and wondering if you still need transcribers um, and they would love to be able to have their undergraduate service learning attached to this. So yep. perhaps that can be thrown into the chat, how to reach. I wanna thank you. It's been extremely, it's, it's an ugly topic, but it's been very interesting. And I just applaud the two of you for your, your brilliance. Thank you. Back to Lisa. Oh, thank you so much, Rose. And thank you, Kirsten and Maria for bringing us along with you this evening for this important, important topic. Um, like all of us, I know um, I'm inspired by your work. Growing and understanding is just the start of a transformative experience. And thank you for pursuing greater justice in our community. And I'm in very grateful to all of you for encouraging us all on this journey towards justice. Thank you to all of you. And thank you audience. You asked so many wonderful, wonderful questions this evening. I don't think I've ever seen a more engaged, um, engaged group, um, which tells me how important this topic is to the more than 400 people who are with us tonight. Um, this evening was sponsored uh, by the Friends of the University Libraries. And please consider supporting the Friends so that we can continue to offer these very special events. And I hope you can enjoy, join us on April 7th for the 12th annual Pancake Poetry event featuring Deborah Keenan and Thank you again, Rose, Kirsten, Maria. Um, thank you mm -hmm. so much. Good night, everyone. <laughs>